are back at Craxon Postmodernity, and after long await, we're finally doing the Q&A podcast. Many of you sent in questions. We have answers only to the good ones, because some of you have sent some weird things, and I'm not even going to waste my time. But um, yeah, so here are some of the questions you submitted. Um, we're going to start with friend of the pod, friend of the Substack, Joe. Uh, Joe asks, is Pentecostalism just American low paganism? And for thoughts on Pentecostal charismatic practices like snake handling, speaking in tongues, rolling on the floor, dancing, etc. So um, mm, the short answer is no, it's not just American low paganism. But first, a little bit of context as to why I say that. Um, I personally have a history with Pentecostalism. When I was in undergrad and I was exploring different denominations of Christianity, I was very much drawn to, I don't know, to the whole speaking in tongues thing, to all the like the baptism in the Holy Spirit, partially because like I wanted concrete proof that god was present and acting in our midst and i find that like the forms of cultural christianity i guess you can say that i grew up with like yeah they talk about god but it just felt like it lacked substance it felt very like abstract and i again like i was looking for something concrete like i wanted to guarantee that god was there and, and present so like seeing these people doing these miraculous things that defied all logic and reason was very attractive. But the few times I tried to like actually go to these kinds of church services, I have to say like it was kind of scary for me. And it also didn't like didn't fit my personality. I never would have fit in in that kind of space. Um, but that being said, like I think first off, I have to acknowledge like you know, the extensive research that I did on Pentecostalism, it became clear to me that what happened at the Azusa Street Mission in the late 1800s, like that was like that was a real manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It was a sign of the times that, you know, I think mainline Protestantism was kind of flattening out, like it was becoming very formulaic and people needed something much more substantial some people needed like I don't know, the fire of the spirit to kind of set them ablaze and like i don't know make the make the faith more um just to like to ravish them to captivate them and i think the spirit was sent to to answer that need and sure sure like it can very easily devolve into um you could say pagan forms of revelry. Ultimately, these kind of self-referential, self-indulgent forms of uh, spirituality and worship. But again, like it answers a real need. It answers to like the kind of disenchantment of like mainline puritanical Protestantism. Um, and I think, yeah, like it actually is the Holy Spirit. In many of the cases, that's manifesting when people, people are speaking in tongues and people are prophesying all of that. The issue, though, and this is in general with Protestantism, and no disrespect to our Protestant listeners, I think because there's a lack of objective authority, a lack of, um, of like, serious engagement with tradition, it's very easy for these subjective experiences of the spirit, these uh, the reception of these charisms, to kind of go off the rails, because there's no, again, there's no objective authority or doctrine to keep it in check. 
And I think that's like what's really valuable about the Catholic charismatic renewal, because the church saw, especially in Vatican II, that something was happening within the different branches of Protestantism that can't be ignored. We can't just write it off as heresy and blame it all on Martin Luther or Henry VIII. Um, and rather, we should open the church to these new manifestations of the spirit, but again, bring it into dialogue with the tradition, the authority of at least of the Roman church. Um, I think also like Cardinal Newman offers very useful cues in understanding like the development of doctrine, the development of the church and different uh, forms of spirituality. But again, without that kind of objective structure, it's very easy for like the baptism of the spirit and these different charismatic practices just to become again, like these kind of navel gazing, self, self-indulgent uh, practices. Um, the other thing I can say, like, I have, I'm very much indebted to a Pentecostal friend of mine who, like, after I converted to Catholicism, yeah, like, I experienced some forms of spiritual warfare, and none of the Catholics I knew wanted to talk about it. Like, I didn't know any people in the Catholic charismatic renewal or who had experience with spiritual warfare. And it was my Pentecostal friend who taught me, like, how to, how to understand it, how to deal with it. The thing that I kept seeing with her, though, is that like she would intentionally chase after these kinds of experiences, seemingly for its own sake. Um, she would like look to fight demons. She would look to like kind of force herself to speak in tongues. And it's like, okay, but if this isn't ordered towards charity, if this isn't, um, if this isn't helping you in your growth and holiness and building the communion of the church, then like. Again, what is this for? As Paul says, like you can have all these different gifts, but if you don't have charity, you're a noisy gong. Um, but again, like even the Bible says this, that if you're speaking in tongues and you don't have an interpreter, it's kind of useless. Like it just becomes a show or performance. So again, like I think it's Pentecostalism and different par charismatic experiences can be real, can be a gift from the spirit, but without certain objective structures in place, like can devolve into, as you say, American low paganism. So that's Joe's question. We're going to move on to a question from everything in its right, right, OL4C3. I don't know what that means. That's your username. So you ask thoughts on psychoanalysis. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to say first off that we need it. We need to take it very seriously. I don't think everyone should go to a psychoanalyst, but a lot of you would definitely benefit from it, especially in a time where CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has become like very predominant, mostly as a reaction to uh, Freud being canceled a couple decades ago, but also just in a culture that's um, it's very bureaucratic, that has these very naive, flowery ideas about human nature. That's it's like kind of taking from enlightenment rationalism. It's taking from Rousseau and the tabula rasa that like we can you know we can determine to be good. We can uh, teach ourselves to uh, behave a certain way. I think like what's missing in the predominant discourse, which psychoanalysis offers us, is this understanding of human nature as something I would say given, I don't think Freud would say that, but there's something that precedes our free will and our reason that determines our nature as human beings. Um, our wills are fragile, our wills are very vulnerable. 
And that's why, again, like referencing St. Paul, we do the evil that we don't want to do. We don't do the good that we want to do. Original sin. Again, Freud wouldn't say that, but I think the framework that he offers us allows more space for that kind of nuanced, substantial understanding of human nature and ultimately of the psyche. I think um, if you take Freud at face value, you can very easily take out a pagan or a kind of like nihilistic postmodern understanding of human nature, which, yeah, like in a way is is contradictory to like a, a traditional monotheistic view but again there's a way to read freud that very much does overlap with a monotheistic kind of view of, of human nature uh monotheistic uh philosophical anthropology um because ultimately like while i would say human nature is fundamentally good it's ordered towards charity towards communion with god and neighbor we are born into original sin like we a lot of us are messed up because of whether it's, again, just original sin itself, whether it's because of traumatic experiences that we grew up with. Um, so yeah, I think like Freudian psychoanalysis lends itself to more enchanted view of human nature. And yeah, like it's, it's easy if you give too much credence to psychoanalysis to just start navel gazing and to start like, um, I don't know, you can drive yourself hysterical with it. And that's where CBT becomes much more practical. But to explore the depths of your psyche, to understand your nature on a hum uh, deeper level, I, that's where I think Freud is in psychoanalysis is important. But it's also worth mentioning, Freud isn't the only psychoanalysist. There are other psychoanalysts, analysts, sorry, who have like more nuanced methods, who have a, a better understanding, a better grasp of, of the truth of human nature. But yeah, I think like in terms of who should really read into psychoanalysis, who should see a psychoanalyst, I think people, yeah, like who have certain neurodivergent tendencies, people who've had trauma, a lot of issues related to their dynamics with their parents, especially people like with questions about gender identity. I do think, yeah, psychoanalysis can be really helpful. Um, for me in particular, it helped me understand the way repression and projection play a role in my own psyche. I, I became much more aware of how I project certain complexes that were rooted in, in my past, in my childhood, that like CBT only touched on the surface of it. Like CBT only helped to like, to kind of, um, to name dysfunctional tendencies and to try to correct them, but it doesn't give you the language to understand like why why is this happening? Why do I have these tendencies? And I think, yeah, like if you want to go in a Jungian direction, looking at the archetypes, like I think, again, it can be very helpful. It could also become a kind of determinist, like neo-pagan kind, of, uh, kind of situation. But at the end of the day, yeah, read about psychoanalysis. See the psychoanalyst if you think it's prudent. But I don't think we should um, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Ultimately, next, Stain Haynes, another friend of the pod, asks, "How much is too much?" Um, I'm gonna say this: too much is when you do anything that's not ordered towards charity, that's not ordered towards fostering communion with others and with God, ideally. Um, when you're not generating something that's valuable, that's substantial and lasting, when it becomes something that's just like um, 
again, self-indulgent or just for the sake of pleasuring yourself. But then the, the reality is we're always going to do too much. We're humans. Um, the key isn't necessarily to tone it down and avoid doing too much, but rather first to own up to it, to own up to when we're doing too much, but also to have a kind of safety net in place, to have some kind of network of relationships, some set of boundaries that keep us in check when we do it. Because again, we're going to do too much. I think ultimately this is why we need some form of intentional community. Next question is from AJ, who's run for the Substack several times. So AJ asks us, how do you toe the line? Uh, what did he say? How do you toe the line of defending examples of mass entertainment for their camp value without letting the irony become a reality and drag down your taste? Ironic appreciation is often a mechanism that I use to excuse myself wasting away on shit media and TikTok. Okay, so that's an important question. So I think with mass entertainment, like we have to be realistic. We have to be like transparent about its nature, but also about our own nature and our relationship to it. So I understand that like, when we're talking about mass entertainment, whether it's like, whether we're talking about Bad Bunny, about Gaga, about, um, they were talking about Britney, they were talking about like Netflix series um, or certain, I don't know, like TikTok pages, as you say, meme pages. We have to understand that, yeah, most of this is generated not with an eye towards beauty, towards goodness, towards truth, the transcendentals but towards commerce, towards uh, making a buck, ultimately. Also that a lot of these, um, all these mass-produced cultural phenomena, not only are they looking to make money, they're also looking to push certain ideologies. They're just looking to push certain ideals that distract people from, from truth and push them towards ideals that only benefit those in power, people with kind of dark intentions, sinister intentions. So having that in mind, I think we also have to acknowledge that like art is art. Even bad art has the capacity to point us towards certain ideals or its lack of in engagement with certain higher ideals can, um, can highlight the need for them at least. So like when I'm listening to Bad Bunny talking about doing kind of messed up sexual things like his, I don't know, his nihilistic extapades, I'm obviously not going to emulate them because I know that they're not going to be fulfilling, that that's not what I'm made for. But it does give me, um, it gives me an understanding of like, of the culture and how it got to be this way. But also the fact that Bad Bunny's honest about how like he's not satisfied by these things. He's constantly living in this tension towards like self-indulgence and this kind of self-reflective um self-reflective kind of musings that come out of this this existential emptiness like that does have value not that it's yeah not to say that like the stuff he's promoting has value but the honest reflection about it the transparency about on it about it is is valuable um yeah I think, again, again, like we need to look at what is our relationship to it. Are we kind of blindly getting sucked into it? Are we getting, um, I don't know, brainwashed by it? Or are we in a detached way 
critically asking, so what does this mean? What does this say about our culture? What does this say about human nature? What does this say about ultimate truth and, and these higher ideals? Um, yeah, and that's why I think irony, like, irony is a, it, to a certain extent, is a valuable way to engage with the culture because you don't take it too seriously. Um, you have a kind of, again, a detached eye towards it that is willing to ask questions. Um, but it, that, again, like, if you see yourself getting sucked in, especially with social media, because it's designed to suck you in, it's, it's designed to, like, kind of take you out of reality. I think, yeah, like, you have to put certain limits. Like, if you're constantly shitposting or if you're going down, like, TikTok rabbit holes, then, yeah, like, recognize how to be like, okay, I'm no longer engaging with this in a way that's making me ask critical questions about truth, about human nature, about reality. And I need to put it down. I need to touch some grass, as they say. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Because what's the alternative? Like to not engage with mass media at all? To like not be in dialogue with the, the predominant culture? For some people, that may be more prudent. It may be more satisfying. But I do think, especially like if you want to witness to, to your values, if you want to be like, I don't know, if you want to be able to share your values in a compelling way, you do need to be in dialogue with the culture. You do need to be able to engage with it, again, with, with healthy limitations, a healthy sense of detachment. So that's how I would answer that. Um, okay, so now we have an audio question from Francisco, which we're going to play right now. Here we go. Okay. Here's my question for the podcast. What's worse, a gay bishop or a gay Taliban member? Think about it. What's more dangerous? Okay, so obviously Francisco is trying to get us canceled, but um, we'll try to answer this in the most, uh, the least problematic way. So gay bishop or gay Taliban member Who's more dangerous? Who's worse? It depends how we define those terms. Um, I would say, I mean, for your own sake, being a gay Taliban member, it's pretty dangerous. I mean, unless it depends also how we're going to define gay. Because if you're like, if you're topping, if you're active, then technically within, at least within that kind of cultural uh, paradigm, you're not gay. If you're the passive person, then yeah, then that's problematic and you're probably going to, something something's going to happen to you. Whereas if you're a bishop, obviously no one's going to kill you. I mean, if you're in Italy, that's another story. We don't know. But in general, I mean, you're in less, you're not as much in the line of danger. Spiritually speaking, um, if you're a Taliban member, you're already causing damage. You're, you're uh, not only inflicting danger on people's souls, but physically you're killing people. Um, if you're a gay bishop, I mean, again, define, it depends how we're defining it. If you're like actively pursuing relationships, even if you're pursuing opposite sex relationships, you're like kind of going against your vocation. But um i don't know but if you're like leading people astray if you're leading people to like i don't know to a false understanding of like certain teachings certain moral truths yeah you do spiritual harm but so i think yeah we're probably going to say the gay taliban member 
is in a little bit more of a risky situation. That's my the safest way that I'm going to attempt to answer that. Okay, moving on to Rose Wood. Rose Wood asks, how would you give advice to a high school junior who would like to start their own substack and in general be featured in publications? Would you suggest to start writing and publishing and have it pick up momentum as well as creating an Insta or social media for it? Is there a way to make it on Substack without crowdsource without outsourcing? Um, so that's part one of her question. So I would say if you're in high school, first you need to read a lot. You need to look for writers whose style and whose ideas you really admire. Really like pay attention to like, I don't know, to all their techniques, pay attention to all the details and try to emulate it to the best of your ability. If possible, reach out to that writer, tell them that you're interested in their work and you'd like to, to ask them more about it. Um, then I would say write for a school newspaper. I think that's your safest bet because then you're working with people who are you know, at, your, at the same level as you. And also you need to find a mentor or an editor who can critique your work, who can help you to understand what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And um, yeah, and like really teach you to develop your, your craft. I think that one-to-one -one relationship is really crucial because again, like you have your own voice, you have your own set of weaknesses and strengths and you need someone to help you like to understand that better, someone with lots of experience. Um, but that being said, I, as a high school or as an undergrad student, I would not start submitting your work to be published. I also would not start a substack. Um, I think you need, yeah, like you should focus on school papers. Um, even after you graduate college, I still don't think you should start writing right away necessarily. I think you need to get a real full-time job in the real world and then start to write. Because look, you may be a great writer, you may have great ideas, but more likely than not, your writing is going to be hollow because it, it's not going to be informed by, by real life experience. Um, as much, again, like uh, not as much as someone who's already had a job, who's already had to interact with people in the adult world. So I'd say that would be ideal, but if you're determined to start right out of college, go for it. Again, as long as you, you have a mentor that you, you know, you have people who you want to emulate um with the socials obviously so yeah like x is changing every day it's very hard right now because external links are not promoted by the algorithm instagram i mean it's good if you want to offer previews for some of your writing um also if you're good at like integrating it with visuals and graphics that can bring in some some readers maybe yeah tiktok tiktok it seems to be the most popular platform right now but you have to be good at translating your writing into reels which it's something i haven't mastered and i don't intend to do it it's too much um but and the last one on substack yeah like will you get success as a substack writer obviously depends on the content that you're writing the quality of it yes like it has to have a little bit of spice i think it also it needs to be drawing more on like anecdotes from real life um it has to yeah like i think narratives do better than like pure theory and ideas on substack but again it's not something i've mastered our substack has a fairly small following so um but when you're ready when your writing skills are, are there try it see what see what happens rose also asks uh 
what is your introduction to Catholicism as you were pre previously Orthodox, if I'm not mistaken? Any tips for an adolescent getting situated and familiar with Catholicism? Yeah, so I was raised in um, a family of both Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox. I was baptized twice as a baby, which you're not supposed to do, but my parents did it anyway. Um, I, yeah, and again, like neither of them were super religious, perhaps on a cultural level, if, uh, if, if anything. But yeah, like I always had certain questions about, again, about like ultimate truths, uh, you know, that big existential questions that like being in a family that wasn't really practicing, going to a public school, I never really had answers to those questions. So by the time like I got into high school, the need to find answers, the need to find again, like ultimate truth was like much more pressing. And it wasn't until like I ended up going to a Catholic college, not intentionally, I just happened to. And at that school, they require, your students are required to take philosophy and theology classes. So it was in those classes that I realized, okay, there are other people asking these questions. Um, perhaps I'm not crazy for asking them. But also I had a philosophy professor who was very devoutly Catholic um, and who was like someone who was just genuinely happy. Like she was someone who really believed what she said and she wasn't BSing. So I talked to her. She like she affirmed my questioning. She said, like, you know, it's a sign that God wants a relationship with you. Then she referred me to one of the Jesuit priests to talk to. Eventually I met um, a lay community, a lay movement full of other people around my age who are asking serious questions about life, about faith, very much rooted in, in like in reality and experience. It wasn't super ethereal. It wasn't super sentimental or, or moralistic or anything. Um, so I think like all these factors, seeing that like the way I was being most helped was through these, these different people who happened to be Catholic. I realized, yeah, like I want to say yes to, to what I, what I'm seeing completely. I want to affirm what's happening in my experience. Um, and you know, I explore different Protestant denominations. So I said, I consider the Pentecostal thing. I tried with Greek Orthodoxy a little bit more, but it was very hard to find people who, again, like who took my question seriously, like a lot of the priests and some of the theologians at the school who are Orthodox were very dismissive. They're just like, oh, you know, it's the true church and, and that's it. You just kind of have to accept it. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't helped. I wasn't really accompanied on that, like human level the way I needed to be. Not to say it's impossible in Orthodoxy, but again, it just, it wasn't my experience, but I also think like Orthodoxy in Western countries, especially in the U.S., like that is very hard to find because of the culture, it's very Western. Um, so I think Roman Catholicism lends itself a little bit more, I don't know, like it's more readily accessible to people living in Western countries. Um, and at the end of the day, like I have to say, I do think Orthodoxy's tradition, the doctrines, the liturgy, the spirituality, like sure, there's something more uh, substantial about it in some ways. Um, there's less, I don't know, there's less, less riskiness, I think. It's um, Catholicism because of its engagement with like, I don't know with we could say the pagan philosophers um i don't know it opened the door to the protestant reformation or from the door to enlightenment there's a lot of um, there are a lot of pitfalls that you can fall into but 
the reason why I don't, I didn't go with orthodoxy and stuck with Catholicism is that like, it became clear for me, one, like in my experience, this is where God was most present. Two, I think that even given all the risks and the pitfalls of Catholicism, like the fact that it does engage with the world the way it does, like it makes it the universal church. This is what makes it true. Um, there's a lot more I can say about that, but that's the, the simple answer. Okay, so... William asks um, about Tara Isabella Burton's book, Strange Rites. Um, in the book, she details the profusion of new belief systems that are developing as the emptiness of modern and postmodern worldviews become increasingly apparent. She discusses the new paganism, Bay Area, techno-utopianism, sex worship, health and wellness fixations, and so much more. It's one of the best books of cultural analysis I've read in the past five years. And I would agree with you. Um, Tara's been on the podcast. Tara's been on the podcast, sorry. Um, Tara is going to be appearing at our event, Holy Lit, with Matt Binder and Jordan Castro on January 29th. And Tara's a great friend. Um, I have, First, I should preface, I first got to know Tara through her New York Times piece on um, like weird Catholicism, weird Christianity, Latin Mass. That was the first time I saw like this cultural phenomenon being engaged in a mainstream publication. I think it brought a lot of attention to it. And for me, I don't know, it was helpful to, to see the way she wrote about the phenomenon in a very like nuanced, um, measured way. Um, that being said, so a lot of Tara is her writing and her ideas are influenced by Charles Taylor, who wrote the the gigantic book a secular age which everybody should read at some point in time and um, i think if you're interested in tara's book it would be useful to read other people who are influenced by taylor um, so we've had bill cavanaugh and jamie smith james k smith on the podcast their concept of cultural liturgy overlaps a lot with what Tara is saying about how like these different cult cultural manifestations become a, a pseudo-religious experience of sorts. Also, Jason Blakely, his book, um, We Built Reality, there's a lot of overlap with what Tara is saying, but also um, because they're both coming from Taylor, they offer these critiques of secularism that are not super ideological, that are open to engaging with liberalism as a political and cultural project, while also not like buying into it too much. So I, again, we love Tara, but also check out some of those other books because they kind of like, um, they, uh, they complement a lot of what Tara is saying in, in her books. Also, you should check out her latest novel here in Avalon just came out. Also, her latest nonfiction book, Self Made, um, is a really great follow-up to uh, to Strange Rights. So definitely check those out. Okay, next one comes from Fiona. So Fiona asks, "Are you going to see the new Eileen movie based on the book by Otessa Moshveg?" Um, I didn't read Eileen yet, so I think I'm going to wait to read it before seeing the movie. I'm excited to know that one of her movies is being made into a book. We're big fans of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, even though I think um, most people who read it don't actually understand what it's about. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, if you watch, she did a, she had like an interview with, um, what's her name, for the Strand, the Strand Bookstore. Let me look it up real quick. Atessa Moshbeg, and what's her name? Um, why am I blanking? It was Latessa Moshbeg and Lena Dunham. How could I forget her name? So Lena Dunham is kind of like emblematic of all these people who read the book and like seriously do not understand what it's about. Um, yeah, like they, they kind of like, they read into it these very conventional tropes about like, I'm, I don't know, I'm not even going to get into it. But I feel like if you watch the interview, uh, Otessa comes off as the main character and uh, Lena comes off as Reva. And if you read the book, you, you understand what I'm trying to say. But yeah, I think, I don't know. So like people think it's, I don't know, people don't get it. Some people think she's a nihilist. I don't think she is. I think she's the perfect example of someone who engages with the nihilism of our age and is able to find something human and authentic within it within the rubble um the best example is her article or her essay personal essay and gq about 9-11 which i referenced in the count here piece i wrote about 9-11 and and performance art um but yeah i think she has a really really misunderstood undervalued voice that I don't know. If you look more closely, I think, I think you can see her genius. Um, Lapvona, I read it. It was kind of sloppy. Not the best writing. It was meandering. But I do think it was fascinating because of like her engagement with like the grotesque, um, but also with like from a theological cultural level. It was interesting to see her engagement with like medieval natural religiosity and um, and superstition. But also, I don't know, I kind of want to write like a piece of theology analyzing it because it makes us question like, is God merciful? Is God, does a good God allow bad things to happen to people? Or why does a good God allow bad things to happen to people? I think it's worth reading, but again, it's not her best work. But I'm, I'm going to read Eileen and then I'll watch the movie. I'll let you know what I think. Okay, next question comes from Sam who asks, how do I reconcile attending a university that is anything but Catholic with my faith? Okay. Um, I feel like we often get caught into this trap of thinking like a Catholic, a good Catholic institution needs to promote Catholic values on a like, on an ideological level, which rarely is going to happen. And when it does, it's usually not done well. And this is because ultimately, like, we reduce faith to this, um, to either something moralistic, something ideological, something sentimental. And really, like, it's, it's an ontological kind of proposal. It's a metaphysical, aesthetic orientation to, to life, towards human existence. And I think especially, like, being at a university, my main question would be, how do I seek God? How do I seek truth? through what I'm learning in my classes, because ultimately God is the source of truth. All knowledge is a path to knowing God, to knowing reality, to knowing his creation better. So anything that's true, anything that's beautiful that we find in our classes, like this is a path that opens us up to knowing God more. Anything that's like truly fascinating to you on a deep level, on a substantial level, like 
that's where I would start to look. And that's possible, like even if you have a professor who's very ideological or who's opposed to Catholicism, to religion in general, um, I find that like if a professor is very passionate about the content they're teaching, if they highlight what's beautiful about it, if they highlight what's what's human about it, um, I think that's super helpful. That's a, uh, yeah, like those kinds of professors, regardless of their beliefs, are really great to have. But even if, if you have professors who are just like apathetic and don't care about what they're teaching, you have the agency to ask questions yourself, to seek what's what's meaningful, what's what's valuable in, in those classes. And also just like to pray to God, to open your eyes to, again, like, what's beautiful in this class and how's God calling you to use what you're learning. So I think like our agency, our ability to seek and to like, to really judge like what's meaningful here, if anything, is very important. Um, but also on the, like outside of your classes and academics, it's valuable to seek meaningful relationships with people who are actually interested in knowing about your life and sharing your suffering and joy with you who, who want to ask questions and, and seek answers to them. And even if they don't come to the same conclusions as you, even if they don't have the same religious beliefs, I think finding friendships like that, building some kind of community like that is important. Um, but even like outside of interpersonal kind of like friendships, I think, yeah, like you can find, find activities in the school that, again, like are... I don't know if you find clubs that are doing actually interesting stuff, especially service related ones or ones related to like your, your future profession, building substantial relationships that help you grow on a, on a human level, but also like even on a professional academic level, like that's important. So that's what I would say. Um, the last question comes from uh, Oxford Complex. Oxford Complex asks for our top 10 movies. I'm going to give top 10, and then I'm going to give some honorable mentions. Okay, first we're going to say Dolce Vita, directed by Fellini. Masterpiece, his magnum opus, in my opinion. Really valid. Really, I don't know. I think it's a fascinating exploration of the post-war era in Europe. Um, clash of postmodern and like traditional religious ideals, decadence, consumerism, society of the spectacle. There's a lot going on there. Um, I would say favorite scene. I mean, I love the scene when um, they're like filming the Virgin Mary appearing to the, to the poor kids. I don't know. There's a lot there, but watch Dolce Vita. It's available on YouTube for free. Um, next, we're going to go with Pasolini, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, because I think this is like the only Jesus, only biblical movie that I actually like, because it's not trying too hard. It's not super preachy or sentimental. Like, it just lets the story speak for itself. Um, and I think, yeah, like, I, I wrote about this in American Spectator. Pasolini really relies on, um, on like the just the bare humanity of these biblical characters like he, the most of the communication is done through the gazes of the characters the way that they look at each other so it's it's more about the the relationship than than the words or i don't know like he doesn't try to 
interpret it for you. He lets it, the story interpret itself in a way. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's one of the best religious biblical movies ever. Next, we're going to go with I Am Michael, James Franco. Um, he, he wanted to make this movie based on this guy who was like a very pro-queer activist for a while. Very critical of like the post-Stonewall LGBT narrative. And then kind of horseshoot towards like this ex-gay evangelical Protestant kind of uh, situation. And I, I love that Franco, he's, he's again, like this isn't someone who's trying to preach some kind of like ideological message to viewers. I think he's really trying to explore, I don't know, the complexity of human nature, but also this, this phenomenon of the horseshoe between like queer theory and like traditional monotheism which gets clouded out by the post-Stonewall narrative. Um, and also Franco's amazing. He's, he's a lunatic, morally compromised, but as an artist, like, yeah, there's a lot going on there. So watch I Am Michael. Next one is Fresa y Chocolate, Strawberry and Chocolate, Cuban movie made, I think, in the 80s. Um, another one of these, like, exploration, like these queer narratives, which are um, not conventional which explore relationship between sexuality and religion um, specifically with Catholicism and Santeria form of Caribbean syncretism but also like fluidity of desire identity it's yeah that's one of the more fascinating explorations of these topics that I've seen um, so that one's fun next we'll do Ladybird Greta Gerwig, much better than Barbie, in my opinion. Um, sorry. Yeah, Lady Bird. Um, I have this secret conspiracy that the movie's all just like a giant metaphor for the Eucharist. More about that in the review I did for Mere Orthodoxy, but like, it's beautiful because it's a person who's struggling, a young person struggling to understand like what is her identity. Is it something that she totally constructs for herself or is it something that's given to her? Is it a gift that's revealed through her relationships? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's genius. Okay, next we'll go to Decalogue, the, the 10 movie series made by Kieslowski in 1989. And it's taking place in like post soviet poland um but so like yeah each movie in this series is based on one of the ten commandments and it's cool because like it's they're not religious movies there's no like biblical stuff going on it's just life in post-soviet poland and the themes are an, an exploration a very creative exploration of each of the commandments um they're all about like 15 minutes long pretty short the first one um, about uh, the commandment against idolatry and honoring the one God. I think that's, yeah, best way, to, best place to start, obviously. But yeah, Kieslowski's a genius for that series. Next, I'm going to pick Almodovar, uh, Mujeres al Borde de un Ataque de Nervios, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. I think Almodovar, again, yeah, like very into like, very dark tropes, very, uh, I don't know, exploration of like certain diabolic principles, 
uh, transhumanism, Freudian psychoanalysis, but artistically a complete genius, especially because of his engagement with the Freudian stuff. Uh, in particular, in this movie, like the psychology of women in general. Um, yeah, Antonio Banderas is great. Uh, all the actresses are great. The music is great. The, the cinematography, the colors, the arrangement of the shots. Yeah, Almodovar is a crazy genius. Okay, next we'll do Precious, Lee Daniels, produced by Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey, unfortunately. Yeah, Precious, I don't know. I just think it's a classic. I think it's uh, it's great acting. Monique is, is queen, what can we say? But um, as much as, yeah, like, okay, it's like really like uh playing up all these stereotypes of of uh suffering of black women i don't know i think it also is like a beautiful story of like somebody discovering that she's loved somebody discovering her value finding hope in like in difficult situations so yeah precious is a classic spike lee do the right thing i don't know i think it's nothing's gonna top that because Spike Lee's a genius, the everything about the movie's genius. It's um yeah, like and it's a super especially in our like very divided times, it's a very nuanced, very human exploration of certain social issues in this country. Um yeah, but it's like it's artistically speaking, the way the movie's shot, like I just feel like the whole film is choreographed. It's almost like a dance. It's so profound. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's one of my favorites. I could watch it over and over again. And it's hilarious, too. Then we're going to do a documentary. Very few people know about it. It was on HBO in, like, what, 2016, 2017? J. Cole's For Your Eyes Only, which is inspired by the album Basically, J. Cole goes to a lot of, like, small, predominantly Black American towns, um, all to be in track, and, like, highlights, um, I don't know, like, stories of resilience, stories of community, of hope. I don't know. I just think, like, it's a perfect example of subsidiarity and, like, trying to uplift smaller communities that, that are forgotten, Um and I think it's, yeah, like, it's a nice antidote to these kinds of, uh, these, like, triumph stories of, like, neoliberal individualism as a way out of poverty and, like, systemic oppression. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a very important documentary, and he doesn't get enough credit for it. So those are the top ten honorable mentions. We're going to say Metropolis by Fritz Lang. I think it was 1927 or something, but... Yeah, if you know, then you know. I'm not going to say anything else. Those People, which is like a spinoff of Brideshead Revisited. It's basically they're Jewish instead of Catholic, and it's New York instead of England. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's a little raunchy, so watch out. But I think Those People is, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good. We'll say Glitter just because it's Glitter. Um, obviously it's horrible and atrocious, but it's glitter. It's, it's, uh, for more on that, read the Countier article about 9-11 and how 9-11 and glitter have a lot in common. And then last honorable mention will be Therese 
by Alain Cavalier, the French director, based on the life of St. Therese of Lisieux, Therese of the Little Flower. Uh, probably one of the best saint movies I've ever seen. Um, and really, like, if you're curious about to know more about religious life, about Carmelites in particular, yeah, I've just never seen such a beautiful movie about a saint. So check that out. Um, I think these are all the questions that you guys sent, at least all the good ones. Thanks for doing it. Hopefully we'll do it again. You should subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so. Get regular updates. You should subscribe to the Substack, especially uh, you should consider doing a paid subscription so you get access to all of our stuff. And follow the socials. Follow Instagram, Cracks and Pomo. Follow the Twitter, all of the above. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you.